pray with me? Jesus, we praise you. You are so awesome. I pray that as we hear the preaching of your word, that you would open our hearts, you would open our souls, that we would hear what you have to say to us as a congregation and to us individually. Thank you so much that we're part of your kingdom and that you love us. Amen. This is a reading from Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians, chapter 12, verses 12 through 26. This is the word of the Lord. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, Because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, Because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. This is the word of the Lord. If you've got a Bible, uh, go ahead and turn with me to the book of Ephesians in the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 4. If you have a pew Bible, it begins on page 1821. I was reading this last week about an incident at a church in Dallas. Something happened. Uh, someone's feelings were, were hurt over it. And so there were reactions. And then there were reactions to the reactions, and then reactions to the reaction to the reaction. And people started taking sides. Uh, Factions started growing until in the end, the church split. Both sides ended up suing each other in court for the property 
a decision that the courts actually referred back to the denomination. And when the denomination tried to decide, they wanted to find out what was the incident that started this all. Their investigation discovered that the conflict started at a church dinner when an elder received a smaller piece of ham than the child next to him. A church dinner, something designed to bring people together, became the occasion for division. We can think of this as an isolated incident, but it might actually be a sign of a bigger problem in our world today. We're fighting amongst ourselves, even on a national level. Civil wars are so common that of the 7 billion people on this planet today, not a single one was even born. The last year, there was not an ongoing civil war. We see division in our own country, uh, whose motto is, ironically, out of many, one. And yet, somehow, that motto seems long forgotten. It was, it was Ben Franklin who said, the two things you can be certain of this world, death and taxes. But he could have gone on to say, the two things certain to cause division in our world are death and taxes. Who should pay how much and what percentage of taxes? Who or what is actually a worthy recipient of those funds and how much for, for each? Which deaths do we mourn for more, if at all? This past week, I've been hearing people grieving not only over the deaths of 50 people in Orlando, but also grieving over the many divisive responses to that event on the news and social media and in conversations. Rather than being united in grief over death, we find ourselves reminded of, of just how a divided nation we are. See, in a world with so many different cultures, uh, personalities, perspectives, and ideas, how can diverse people actually, actually come together as one? It's actually a question people have been answering and asking for throughout human history, the question of unity, of being, of being one, of being in harmony, of being united with others. And it's, and it's something we long for but, but often struggle to do. And it's not just a challenge for those outside the church but inside the church. How can a church have unity in, in a divided world where people part ways over the size of a slice of ham? It's the question addressed here in our passage in Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. The Apostle Paul writes this. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all, and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. And then Paul says, and aside, what does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill all the universe. And back to the topic of gifts, it was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, and some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ 
Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching or by the cunning and the craftiness of men and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. This morning I want to look at three approaches to this goal of unity. First, how does the world that we live in do unity? If we had an alien that visited our planet and just had to answer that question just based on observations that they made, how would they say that? How would they respond? Maybe they would say, well, I see that you all have unity where, where you're the same, when people are from the same nationality or the same ethnic group or reside in the same socioeconomic class. People that are in the same marital status seem to get together, people in the same life stage. Uh, people gather around the same interests, same hobbies, same causes, same sports teams. They would notice that we tend to surround ourselves with people that have the same level of education, people on the same ends of a political spectrum, people in the same age bracket. And when asked why, we might answer that, well, frankly, it's easier that way. We all tend to gravitate towards what comes easiest. One website that's really aware of this and has made millions off of it is meetup.com, whose slogan is, find your people. You can find your people if you are a liberal baby boomer and you can join the liberal boomer group. If you are a young black professional, you can join the young black professionals group. If you are an urban chicken farmer, there's a group for you on this website. And in fact, if you like eating with others but can't stand chomping and slurping and gulping, you can join the Quiet Eaters meetup group, which only has three members, which means there's room for you. So go online. I see this in my own life. My, my best friend in, in fifth grade was a guy named Jason Crow, And the reason why we ever became friends is we liked the same video game. And then years later, we were better friends because we had more video games. That was about it. Uh, when I was in my uh, 30s, I would, uh, still actually am, I guess, anyway, I would find myself driving cross town when I lived in Las Vegas so I could stand for three hours in a crowded place with long lines for the bathrooms and lots of noise because that was the one place I could be surrounded by fellow Seattle Seahawks football fans and watch a game a thousand miles uh, from the stadium. You see, we hold parades so that we can celebrate together who we are, what we are, what we love, who we love, what we support. We have Irish heritage parades. We have Cardinals World Series parades. We have pride parades. We come together to protest the things that we think are wrong. Corporations, policies, and politicians, injustices, sometimes even protesting other people's parades. And that's because there's a feeling uh, of unity that often accompanies a sense of division when our group is pitted against that other group. And sometimes it's subtle. Uh, we simply avoid those that we might have conflict with by creating monocultures. We can have rural monocultures. We can have suburban monocultures. We can have urban monocultures. In St. Louis, as many of you know, there's a big division between the city and the county. We even have bumper stickers to let people know which side of that line we park our cars in at night. And yet, even if you live in the city, we have a very pronounced Delmar Divide right there, just a mile or so from here, where few people cross it, and life changes drastically once you do. 
Maybe we might even choose where we live because of who we want to be near, but sometimes we choose where we live because of who we don't want to be near. Yet sometimes our division is obvious. Because we're no longer around those not like us, we can't really talk with the other, so we start talking about the other, often disparaging the other, the, the other political party, especially in an election year, the other ethnic group, whether majority group or a minority group, the other subculture, often using names for groups of people that they never use for themselves. We wrongly judge those who look different than us, who talk different than us, who think different than us, and differences in practice and opinion often become occasions for distrust and for fragmentation amongst people. And yet when different groups do finally share their different ideas, If we're honest, if I'm honest, we find ourselves more eager to point out what we think they got wrong than to listen to something that they might have gotten right, something they might have to teach us about ourselves and and about our world. And yet even those that are similar still struggle with this. I remember uh, two women that I knew years ago in seminary, and I thought they have so much in common. They must be the best of friends, both alpha females. I bet they get along great. As you can imagine, it didn't quite work that way. And yet there's another approach to unity. Um, Religious people, church people, also have their own ways of doing unity, their own ways of bringing people together. Best case scenario, churches have the potential to unite people across uh, different uh, generations, from different families and different backgrounds, from different ethnic groups, different socioeconomic classes, different education levels even. And many of these churches actually choose, rather than being independent or alone, to actually come together with other churches for mutual support, even accountability, through, through denominations, through church networks. And while all of these steps actually promote unity, there's still the temptation to do unity only with those who are the same. The same ethnic group, the same religious tradition, the same denomination, the same theological camp within the denomination— the same sides of a denominational spectrum, or maybe only with those that are driven by the same cause or the same issue as you, those who take the same sides when debating if it's worse to be theologically wrong or worse to be relationally mean. And sometimes our sameness is is by design. Many of you have heard of niche churches. You see, there's the biker church. There's the cowboy church. There's the goth church. There's the fight club church. There's the hip-hop church. There's the heavy metal church. Church. There's even the middle-class suburban baby boomer church, which for marketing reasons shortened its name to two words. Even, as I noticed when I lived in Las Vegas, a church for people who don't like church. These churches celebrate the fact that you can be a Christian, but you can also be these other things. In a sense, you could say that's, that's a good thing because they realize, well, there's no culturally neutral way of doing church, and so they decided, well, here's our way, and we're just going to rock it, and we're going to put it in our name. And yet often in our attempts to unite people, churches have become better known for who or what they're against than what they're actually for. You see, sometimes through, though different groups are, are very aware of what they're for, and so you might read it on church websites. We're serious about whatever which usually implies that, well, those other churches really aren't taking pride in maybe being better at something than those other churches, better at theology than other churches, or better, than, better at service than other churches, better at showing emotion in worship, or better at showing reverence in worship. 
better at being decent and orderly, or better at being uh, spirit-led and and free. And yet, as you often have probably noticed if you tried bringing things up like this, pointing out others' weaknesses when they have religious backgrounds often backfires because religious people often take criticism as, as persecution. Because persecution exists, but not all criticism is actually persecution. And as a result, not knowing the difference, we can rally around our own. It becomes us versus them, and the other group can be those outside of our church, sometimes even within our own congregation. I struggled with this. Um, At the end of a training when I was working with the Navigators Ministry, when we had to watch scenes from the movie The Big Kahuna, it included scenes of two salesmen. One, uh, very overtly Christian, one not so interested in those things. And yet by the end of the movie, a third salesman exposed both of them as being guilty of the exact same thing. Treating others, not as people, but as targets for their marketing. Where one was trying to sell industrial lubricants, the other one trying to sell Jesus. And I was offended. Because I just thought, well, this guy's just doing evangelism. And all forms of evangelism are valid, and so you can't criticize them. I feel like I was being attacked, you know, hearing these Christians saying what all of these non-Christians are saying as if they're right. And what I forgot in that response was the words of the Proverbs, which say that the wounds of a friend can be trusted. You see, I'd assume that whatever Christians were prone to do was, was right. And so why listen to outside criticism? Why echo others' criticism in the church? And that assumption which I held for so long kept me from seeing how often the religious and the non-religious approaches to life weren't really that different. And as a result, it kept me from hearing truth I didn't want to hear. It kept me from growing. And it took a Christian echoing a non-Christian's words to actually expose my own tribalism, my own sin. See, in religious circles, some sins get a free pass. Many of you know this, while others can be unforgivable. Uh, The scripture never forbids vulgar language. Sometimes it actually uses vulgar language, but often in religious circles, vulgar language is is condemned, while gossip, which scripture does forbid, is allowed, encouraged, sometimes even expected. And as a result, religious people often feel more free to talk about their own sins and what's wrong with those people than they are free to talk about or even acknowledge or even understand their own sins. Two years ago, I, I met a guy who'd graduated from a, a seminary in South Carolina and came to Covenant here in St. Louis to do a second master's. So we had a chance to hang out with him, get to know him for a few weeks before classes started. And after about a week, he said, you know, this is the first time that I've spent time hanging out with Christians where we weren't just trashing some other group of Christians. And I thought, well, well isn't that a good thing? Um, And I thought, well, maybe he thought that this was a good thing, a different way of doing unity. But before classes started, he withdrew. He moved back to where he was from. And and to this day, I I wonder, did he know how to be one with others apart from the ways that he'd learned at his previous home? You see, sometimes it's a common villain that unites religious people. But sometimes it's a common hero. Uh, Paul writes about this uh, to a church in, in Corinth where people would say, well, I follow Paul. And rather than saying, yeah, uh, no, Paul was saying, yeah, and you also say, I follow Apollos, and I follow Peter, and I follow this well-known pastor. You know what's not in common here? None of these people are Jesus, the one that you're actually supposed to be following. 
one modern pastor, uh, John Piper, who many consider, you know, the guy, well, I follow John Piper. He speaks to this issue back then and today when he says, lining up behind their favorite Christian leaders and boasting about their superiorities is what results in quarreling and often divisions, schisms in the church. As I look at all of this, what it, it, what it probably means is summed up in a conversation I had years ago with a law student named Nathan. He first came to Memorial thinking that we were part of a, of a different denomination. Uh, and when I followed up with him, he described himself in a couple of terms to try to convince me that Memorial wasn't really the church for him. Well, I told him that those terms actually perfectly described my roommate, who feels very at home here and is actually an intern. Well, he said, well, he, he was actually looking for a, a, a diverse congregation and mentioned a few ways that he hoped that would play out. And so I let him know, actually, all of those dynamics are present here, and there's an upcoming event that actually looks very closely at two of them. And then he replied, well, I find that people in this other denomination that I thought I might have been going to a church in usually have similar views to my own on politics uh, and how our theology should impact our politics. And so I said, yeah, actually, there's people that, you know, have those same views right here in this church. And there's also those that have different views in this church. And if you're looking for diversity, this could be a great place for you to experience it and even to add to it. He never returned. He made it clear in his last email that he liked the idea of diversity. Yet those diverse people had to be just like him. He'd adopted an approach to unity that basically assumed that it works the same in, in the church as it does outside the church, and that's because often it does. Often there really isn't that much difference. There's another option. There's, there's a third option, because Paul in this letter has been talking about the Christian gospel for three chapters now. And so in chapter 4, he starts asking his readers, those who believe this gospel of what Jesus did for them, to consider what it would look like if they actually applied that truth to their community. What's the third option? How, how does the gospel do unity? How's it different? Well, first of all, it actually gives us a different reason for unity, a new identity. You see, in the three chapters leading up to this, Paul has been uh, using this phrase over and over again, in Christ. He uses it a dozen times just in the first two chapters of this letter, and here he elaborates what that means for a people whose identity is in Christ it says in verse 15 and 16 that, that Christ is the head. You are the body. There's a new way you need to start thinking of yourself and your relationship to Christ and to others in the church. And to drive the point home in verse 4, he uses the word one seven times in the same sentence. Beginning in verse 4, he says we are one body, that there is one spirit that we all partake in. There is one object of our hope, one Lord that we worship, one faith that we share, one baptism that we've all received. There is one God who was over us all. Back in chapter 2, Paul had already said that in Christ, God is creating one new man. He's creating one new people out of formerly divided groups, one new household, one dwelling place that God lives by his Spirit, where we all partake of the same promise because we are all in Christ. The effect this has, as one pastor put it, is the more prominent Christ is what Paul is putting before them, the less important everything else will be. What this means is that other identities, 
other, other allegiances. They don't disappear. They take a back seat in such a way that you can acknowledge them without having them needing to be an issue, a reason for division. It's a tough challenge, and yet to live it out would actually require a different way of unity. That's what we see in verse 2 where Paul talks about humility and gentleness and, and patience and bearing with one another in love the very things that Christ himself was demonstrating in his life, saying to actually live this out means following Christ in these ways. You see, in chapter 2, Paul already talked about salvation, that the uniquely Christian approach to how we become right with God is it's not based on what we do, but based on what someone else did for us that we could never do ourselves, something that humbles us, something that keeps us from boasting, something that undermines our pride. And here, knowing that so many forms of unity are rooted in pride, he calls for humility. Well, Sinful pride often considers ourselves better than others. Biblical humility actually considers others better than ourselves because it's our sin we're more aware of than others. Part of humility is is simply having an accurate view of yourselves. Uh, I know there's some superhero Marvel comic fans in the room, and so you'd love this, that they took a poll about what America's favorite superpower would be to have about five years ago, I think this poll was. And, And number one was mind reading. Everyone wants to be Professor X. Mind reading, that you know someone's secret thoughts and their, their hidden motives. I know many married couples that would swear to you for the first 15 years of their marriage, they had that superpower, and then realized after a while that they, that they really didn't. And they noticed how many conflicts came up because they thought that they possessed on some level this, this superpower because we see it happening all the time. You don't even have to be married for this to happen. Someone does something different than us or something that we just don't understand. So we start reading motives into their words, into their actions, even evil motives. We start imagining horrible things about them because we just can't imagine anything good, which leads us to saying hurtful things that cause division between brothers and sisters, and I mean us, and by us, I mean me. Someone saw this tendency in me a while back and, and pulled me aside and actually modeled for me a very different approach. They said, Keith... You know, I don't know for sure, but if I were in your shoes, seeing what you've just done, hearing what you've just said, I'd find it really hard, if I were you, to not be fill in the blank, the thing I might be guilty of. Then he asked, how's that going for you? It was a response that not only modeled humility, not assuming he knew the answer, but also modeled gentleness. Because as many of you know, it's not just what we say, but, but how we say it. It's what Proverbs talk about, where it says, a gentle answer turns away wrath, while a harsh word stirs up anger. Paul goes on, though, and he talks about encouraging their patience to bear with one another in love. And later on, he'll use this metaphor in verses 14 and 15 about Christian growth being a lot like an infant growing into an adulthood. All of you were infants growing. Some of you have infants How long does growth take? How long does maturity take? How patient do you need to be with a child? Paul's saying this to let us know that we're in this for the long haul with each other because in the church we're family. Because of this, what Paul offers is actually a very different approach to unity. We see it in verse 3 where he says, Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace talks about effort, he's saying this takes intentionality. This doesn't happen on its own. And we see it in another letter he wrote in Philippians chapter 4. Two women are feuding, Euodia and Syntyche. 
and he exhorted them to agree in the Lord, which tells us a few things. One, that agreement is possible. Uh, Two, it tells us it's not a theological issue because he would have just given them the theological right response. And three, that the goal, the way they're actually going to have unity is in the Lord, that that needs to be foremost in their mind if they're ever going to come together. And yet he goes on in asking another to help with them, one that he in that letter calls a true companion, telling us that unity is not only something that takes effort, but it's often taking a group effort. What we say and what we do can either help unity or hinder that. And often when there's divisions and disagreements, often it's, you know, the burden of the majority to try to love the minority when hostility comes up. I saw this modeled with a number of you a few years ago. There was uh, somebody who took it personally when they heard one member of the church say something positive about a non-political aspect of a well-known political figure. And they took it personally, and they started on a rant, and maybe to their surprise, no one continued the political rant. Nobody started an angry counter-political rant. Instead, together, we just reflected on the beauty of how being united in Christ actually enables different people to come together, to coexist and serve alongside one another. And maybe for this one person, it provided another approach to, to handling our disagreements that they just weren't used to, one that they might themselves be able to apply. And yet we're not called in this passage to establish unity. It says we're actually called to keep unity, to preserve unity. It assumes that there's already a bond of peace, a form of unity that already exists. If Christ has destroyed through his work on the cross the hostility that exists between believers and God, that peace has a way of overflowing into other relationships. And if we're actually going to live that out while rejecting both the power of sinful pride and the power of tribalism to unite us, we'll actually need a different power for unity. And Christ says that that power is himself. If you look in verse 11, you see one of Paul's many lists that he gives in Scripture of spiritual gifts. But here, for some reason, he only mentions gifts of of leadership and, and speaking. And there's a reason he mentions these gifts here. Well, first of all, because he says in verse 12, these gifts are given to prepare people to equip God's people for works of service and ministry. Because there's something that happens when we work together with different gifts and different personalities to accomplish a single goal as one body. We actually live out what it means to be one body with one head and one goal. Serving together does that. We see this in movies. We see this in books. The Lord of the Rings trilogy of books. Band of Brothers, the miniseries. The movie, A League of Their Own. Men and women are gathered together knowing that they have differences, but at the end of the story, though, they become a tight-knit community because what they've accomplished, they knew that they could not have accomplished without the other. But there's another aspect of what Paul is talking about here, why he gives these gifts to the church. He says in verse 15 that speaking the truth in love is what will actually help us grow in unity. You see, that's what Paul's been doing for the first three chapters of this letter. He's describing what he's been doing, speaking the truth about Christ, about what he has done for you, about your new identity in him to accomplish the growth of a community together. God not only calls together those who are different than each other, but he actually uses those differences as a means for our growth. Because if we're honest, 
Those like us have the same blind spots as us. If you're like me, you probably have the same blind spots as me. And it's not going to be one of us that's going to be able to help us see our blind spots, but somebody not like us. I was starting a, a ministry internship with the Navigators, and uh, I was looking at the, the teammates I was going to work with. And the day that I learned who I was going to work with and the day my friends found out who I was going to work with, because they knew us all, they said, you guys are going to have problems. <laughs> Meaning, Keith, you're going to have problems. Keith, you're going to cause problems. And unfortunately, they were, they were right. Our differences caused lots of issues, especially when weaknesses started getting exposed But, because I was required to go to counseling after causing so much damage in this group, I got a diagnosis. Yeah, you're not pathological, Keith. You're just immature. Or in the words of Paul, uh, I was still a spiritual infant despite the amount of scripture that I knew. See, often the most unhealthy communities are those where everyone's the same. We don't see each other's blind spots and personality traits become canonized. Differences become demonized. And that's the environment that I've been coming from. It was a hard year. It was a hard two years. But I needed to be surrounded by those not like me. Because without that, I would have never perceived my need for growth. If you're here at Memorial today, all of you have the same opportunity for growth as a part of this church. Uh, One researcher who looked at us and over 200 other churches uh, said that we were one of the three most diverse churches according to personality and ministry style, which I actually did some research and found out that's a type of diversity in a church that's even more rare than ethnic diversity. Some of us are detailed people. Some of us are more intuitive people. Some of us get excited about change, and some of us are really scared by change. Some of us grew up here and are now retirement age. Others are brand new and maybe still in school. And yet what I've observed here in this church for some reason over the last two years, our our fastest-growing community groups have always been those that have been intentionally intergenerational. Maybe grandparents using gifts of hospitality while folks in their 20s using gifts of of leadership and teaching, others using gifts of, of administration and organization to keep things together, newly married couples with newly Christian people, single people and single again people. And when one of these groups got too big and had to multiply, uh, and they had to decide, well, who's going to go with who, one couple who's got kids in their 20s and 30s asked a couple younger than their kids, saying, could we do a group with you? And by the way, could one of you lead it? We'd really like that. It's not what we expect. It's not the way our world does things. It's what the gospel does as people offer their gifts in community. Verse 16, Paul is telling us that these different parts of the body, every joint, every ligament, are not only held together, but are actually necessary for the body to grow if that growth is going to be in Christ. Because as we know, you can have a homogenous uh, group that's united by personality or politics or, or personal preferences. But to be honest, a truly diverse church has no hope for unity except for Jesus Christ meaning our differences actually help us keep Christ as the point of unity, which in the end actually helps us grow. One of the women women who was a part of that community group that I mentioned moved away and, and was so impacted and grew so much and life was changed so much by being a part of this diverse group that she's now pushing to see that same type of group started in her new church on the East Coast. 
what she witnessed is what Scripture talks about, that Jesus unites different people with different gifts so that as we serve together, we grow together. That's what we heard about in the Scripture reading just earlier. 1 Corinthians 12, one body, many parts, and yet if there's no diversity, if we don't even value that diversity, everyone just fights over who gets to be the right thumb while the rest of the body just falls apart. Now, just don't hear what I'm not saying in this. A diverse community still comes with its own challenges. One scholar who's researched hundreds of churches points out that amongst the worst conflicts that occur in churches, even church splits, nine out of ten are rooted in differences of personality and and preferred ministry style rather than differences in theology or even differences or matters of sin. And yet when we assume otherwise, when personality differences become sin issues in our minds, actual sins usually follow judging each other, condemning each other, assuming motives, gossiping about one another. Because of these differences, we can be tempted to judge others, not by biblical standards, but by human standards, by how they compare to us. This year in particular, to judge those who who don't vote like us, whether outside the church or even inside the church. And yet, while unity doesn't require uniformity, our, our diversity, regardless of its source, has to be lived out in obedience to Jesus Christ, both the way we live out our diversity and our differences and the way that we respond to others' differences. Because if not, Jesus actually says we're showing that we're really not his body and he's really not our head. Because Jesus says it's our love for another, our oneness. That would be the true sign that we are his people and that he first loved us. So we see here in verse 9, where Paul tells us how, in love, Christ humbled himself by descending to earth and putting on flesh, how he was gentle and patient with us, sacrificed for us, and demonstrated his love for us. And he did it so that we could be united, so we could have unity with Christ and unity with each other, a unity not based on on what we love, but on who loved us. Not who we are, but, but whose we are. So... A week ago, I had a day off, and so I finally saw a movie that I'd been interested in called Four Brothers. If you look at the title and you see the four main characters, you kind of wonder if it was the wrong title, because these guys don't look like each other. They don't even have the same skin color. One was a rising musician. One was a former Marine. One was a very hot-headed hockey player. The other one was an entrepreneur, a settled-down husband and father. They had four different personalities, very different strengths, very different weaknesses. And yet, formerly, these brothers were all strangers. When they first met, they had no connection, nothing in common except the need for a family. They were foster kids. They were orphans. And as the story goes on, they were all adopted by the same woman named Evelyn and became part of the same household. Not united because of their common strengths, but because of their common need, united by an act of love and sacrifice on their behalf, an act of love that ultimately cost the life of the one who loved them. See, rather than their own loves, it was another's love, another's life, another's death that brought them together so that despite their differences, they could be family, so that they could be one. That's what Jesus did for you, for me, for us, so that we and be one. Let me pray for us.
Father, we thank you for the love shown in Christ, for his sacrifice, for the humility that he showed, for the love that he showed, for the patience that he showed with us, those who deserved his wrath but instead received his love and mercy because of what he did on the cross for us. Father, may this act of love unite us all and help us to better live out the unity that we have in Christ. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Friends, the Lord be with you. Then lift up your hearts. And let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is good and right to give thanks and praise to you, our God and Savior. We consecrate to you the elements on this table, this bread and this cup, Lord, that you would minister the gospel to us and help us see Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who washes our feet to be loved by him and to be changed by him and in his power to be your church in all its diversity, united in the self-sacrificial call of Christ to discipleship. We give you thanks in his name. Amen.